Hello everyone and welcome back. It is lovely to see you all. My name is Sam. This is Sidecar Stories. But if you're here, you probably know that already. What up, gang? How y'all doing? What have you been up to this week? It's the it's the perennial question. It's the question I always want to know the answer to. Um, Hogwarts Hippie says, is it weird that I want Sam to sing Hanging Tree again? Uh, it's not Hogwarts Hippie. I want me to sing Hanging Tree again too because this time maybe I'll do it better. <laughs> I was not pleased with that one. That's okay. That's okay. But uh, I do find it funny that, uh, you know, I've, I've done like goblin songs. Frankly, the goblin song I still think is my best one ever. Although I did do a one for social media. Um, what was it? Far over misty mountains cold. Um, I did the, I did a, an excerpt from that one, and it turned out really good. I, I it had a little bit of pitch drift, but, uh, and then obviously the Goblin song. Uh, that one was a ton of fun, but, but, none of those are supposed to be such good singers that the birds and the trees stop singing. Katniss kind of is. And so, and so, being a little rough around the edges, I don't know. I wish I had a better, I, I, I typically like to try and connect the lyrics uh, to a song that already exists. For instance, my version of uh, Misty Mountains, uh, that one, um, I kind of riffed off of a song called August by Anuna. Um, the... Uh, the Goblin song, I didn't really riff off of anything, just, I, I started with that s snort, pounding on the desk thing. Um, <laughs> yeah, Gwendog. Gwendog says, are we talking about the Goblin song from The Hobbit? It was killer. Yeah, I think, I think that one was, like, the one I got the most right. That one was, I think, my best one yet. But, <laughs> it was, and it was so much fun. And, uh, it turned out great live, too. You know, just being able to, like, go back in there and, and listen to it live. And I got all the way through it without messing up. I was able to, <laughs> I was able to, like, lay down a solid track live. And it was dope. And I enjoyed it a lot. Down, down, far underground. What do we think, gang? What have you been up to? Orly Rose says, hot, scorched, melted. Yeah, that's where that's where we're at as well. Although, uh, as far as I can tell, not as bad as the UK this week. Um, it's rare that Southern California fares better than the UK when it comes to heat, but here we are. Um, Hogwarts Hippie says, gosh, I love Anuna. Glad you suggested it. Yes, indeed. Uh, I found Anuna once a long time ago because I thought it sounded like really unearthly. Uh, I really love Fingwala. Uh... <laughs> <laughs> um, if y'all are looking for Fingwala, let me see if I can spell it from memory. Alright, maybe that's correct, but you should be able to Google that along with the word Anuna, and you should be able to find one of my favorites. But um, those are a lot of fun because I, I sort of use them as inspiration for uh, magic, and if you listen to it, you'll, you'll know why. Listen to it with head, headphones if you can. Headphones, earbuds, whatever. Just like... Something with some decent audio. Everywhere at the end of time, continu continuously stuck in Proteus Spade's head. At first, I was thinking I was looking at everything everywhere all at once. But that's not it. Tell me about... Is this a... I assume it's a song. Uh, and you may have to clue me in as to <laughs> what it's from. Carpe Jungulum? Jugulum. Carpe Jugulum. 
<laughs> Seize the throat? <laughs> that probably isn't right, is it? Okay. Review. Last week, chapters 10, 11, and 12 with one of our bigger cliffhangers. Chapter 10. This is the beginning of part two of this book, The Assault. Chapter 10. Hey, uh, 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 Katniss is reeling after seeing on a live stream Peter's blood is spilled. Um, he is clearly doing very poorly, but after, um, uh, after the rebels hijacked some of the, uh, the communication systems and was broadcasting these, these messages from Katniss, yes, but also from, uh, from our, <laughs> oh wait, sorry, not yet. Uh, these messages from Katniss, um, it kind of in retaliation for some of the things that happened in District 8, all this, as, as, uh, the message ends, Katniss sees that, um, they have essentially, they're, they're not playing nearly as nice with PETA anymore. Um, so she has to kind of brave this. She is working on, uh, just, just sort of like trying to work on surviving and, and continuing to operate, knowing that PETA is being punished every time she succeeds. Um, one of the big things that this punishment was for on uh, upon PETA is that he kind of warned them. Now, they're not sure at first, but uh, getting into Chapter 10, it appears that PETA warning them about an attack, it was true. They managed to get everyone down below, including a few people that they probably wouldn't have been able to save had it not been for Peta's warning. Um, uh, Prim, maybe Gale, maybe Katniss's mother, all big question marks if that warning had not come through from Peta. In chapter 11, they are just spending their time under the ground in these bunkers. Um, not just underground, but like deeper underneath uh, the rest of District 13, because much of it is already underground. Um, a little bit more of a strategy meeting, and after this, the important thing is to make sure that the rebels all over Pan Am know Katniss is still alive and still intends to fight. So, they go out above, um, they see what's left of the surface over District 13. The capital seems to have left flowers as well. Um, roses as kind of a signal to Katniss. But Katniss, I mean, doing her best, is not able to not able to put together a decent message. Can't make a speech, even the few lines that she needs. She barely makes it through. And so someone else steps up. It's Finnick. Now we know Finnick has been Finnick has been sort of moving and shaking all around in uh <laughs> uh, in the district. Um, after his success as a victor, we know that he had all of these different lovers throughout the districts, um, but especially in the capital. And now he reveals what that was actually all about. When winners win the, the, uh, win the games, um, if they are attractive, then... President Snow will kind of sell them around to the highest bidder, uh, sell their companionship, and I think we can assume a bit more than that. Um, and Finnick would get gifts. It was pretty clear he didn't need any money, um, but he would take gifts in the form of secrets. 
secrets about other people in the capital. And he's been stockpiling these things. And Katniss, of course, realizes, you know, she kind of had things wrong about Finnick. She assumed he was this, um, uh, this, uh, I don't know, Lothario uh, sleeping his way through the capital. But turns out he wasn't entirely in control of that. And that is what they are fighting against. That lack of bodily autonomy. That lack of an ability to make decisions about your own body. Um, this is one of the many things that they are fighting against. And as Katniss listens, it gets wilder and wilder. These secrets coming from Finnick. All sorts of individuals, um, uh, people from the capital like Plutarch are, you know, surprised by some of these things. And then he saves the best for last for this recording. He starts to talk about President Snow. How is it that President Snow rose to power? And it really comes down to one word. Honk. It really comes down to one word. Poison. Once again, the the, <laughs> the dramatic timing of the horns outside. Impeccable. Um, poison. Poisoned enemies. Poisoned friends who had potential to become a threat to his power. Uh, and even moments where he had to drink from the poisoned cup it's himself uh, in order to allay suspicion. That is why, apparently, he wears these just sickly smelling roses. It's to cover up the smell of blood from wounds in his mouth that will never heal because of this poison that he drank. Um, because antidotes aren't always perfect. This these broadcasts serve two purposes. First, to communicate these things, these, you know, secrets off into the districts where, once again, hopefully it will wake people up to the idea that, you know, these aren't just, these aren't just people who treat us poorly. They're despicable people who treat us poorly. And, as such, hopefully we'll bolster the efforts. But there's a second secret purpose as well. These broadcasts are going to be put up everywhere, including the capital, and it is to disguise and distract from the mission that is taking place underneath it. A rescue mission for which Gale was one of the very first volunteers, a rescue mission to go and retrieve PETA. It's a quiet horror as Katniss awaits news whether or not they were able to rescue Peta, And upon discovering that they were able to rescue Peta and that he's all right, she rushes to see him. And at their first meeting, after catching something strange in his eye, she suddenly finds herself with his hands gripped around her throat. Chapter 13. The cold collar chafes my neck and makes the shivering even harder to control. At least I'm no longer in the claustrophobic tube while the machines click and whir around me, 
listening to a disembodied voice telling me to hold still while I try to convince myself I can still breathe. Even now, when I've been assured there will be no permanent damage, I hunger for air. The medical team's main concerns, damage to my spinal cord, airways, veins, and arteries, have been allayed. Bruising, hoarseness, and a sore larynx, this strange little cough, not to be worried about. It will all be fine. The Mockingjay will not lose her voice. Where, I want to ask, is the doctor who determines if I'm losing my mind? Only I'm not supposed to talk right now. I can't even thank Boggs when he comes to check on me. To look me over and tell me he's seen a lot worse injuries among the soldiers when they teach chokeholds in training. It was Boggs who knocked Peta out with one blow before any permanent damage could be done. I know Hamish would have come to my defense if he hadn't been utterly unprepared. To catch both Hamish and myself off guard is a rare thing. But we've been so consumed with saving Peta, so tortured by having him in the capital's hands, that the elation at having him back blinded us. If I'd had a private reunion with Peta, he would have killed me. Now that he's deranged. Nope, not deranged, I remind myself. Hijacked. That's the word I heard pass between Plutarch and Haymitch as I wheeled past him in the hallway. Hijacked. I don't know what it means. Prim, who appeared moments after the attack and has stayed as close to me as possible ever since, spreads another blanket over me. I think they'll take the collar off soon, Katniss. You won't be so cold then. My mother, who's been assisting in a complicated surgery, has still not been informed of Peter's assault. Prim takes one of my hands, which is clenched in a fist, and massages it until it opens and blood begins to flow through my fingers again. She's starting on the second fist when the doctors show up. Remove the collar, give me a shot of something for pain and swelling. I lie, as instructed, with my head still, not aggravating the injuries to my neck. Plutarch, Hamish, and Beatty have been waiting in the hall for the doctors to give them clearance to see me. I don't know if they've told Gale, but since he's not here, I assume they haven't. Plutarch ushers the doctors out and tries to order Prim to go out as well, but she says, No, if you force me to leave, I'll go directly to surgery and tell my mother everything that's happened. And I warn you, she doesn't think as much of a game maker calling into shots on Katniss's life, especially when you've taken such poor care of her. Plutarch looks offended, but Haymitch chuckles. I would let it go, Plutarch, he says. Prim stays. So, Katniss, Peter's condition has come as a shock to all of us, says Plutarch. We couldn't help but notice his deterioration in the last two interviews. Obviously, he'd been abused, and we put his psychological state down to that. Now, we believe something more was going on that the capital's been subjecting him to a rather uncommon technique known as hijacking. Beatty? I'm sorry, Beatty says, but I can't tell you all the specifics of it, Katniss. The capital's very secretive about this form of torture, and I believe the results are inconsistent. This we know. It's a type of fear conditioning. The term hijack comes from an old English word that means to capture, or even better, seize. We believe it was chosen because the technique involves the use of tracker jack or venom. And the jack suggested hijack. You were stung in your first Hunger Games, so unlike most of us, you have first-hand knowledge of the effects of the venom. Terror. 
hallucinations, nightmarish visions of losing those that I love, because the venom targets the part of the brain that houses fear. I'm sure you remember how frightening it was. Did you also suffer mental confusion in the aftermath? asks Beatty. A sense of being unable to judge what was true and what was false. Most people who have been stung and lived report something of the kind. Yes. That encounter with Peta, even after I was clear-headed, I wasn't sure if he had saved my life by taking on Cato or if I'd imagined it. Recall is made more difficult because memories can be changed. Beatty taps his forehead, brought to the forefront of your mind, altered and saved again in the revised form. Now imagine I ask you to remember something, either with a verbal suggestion or by making you watch a tape of the event. And while that experience is refreshed, I give you a dose of Tracker Jack of Venom. Not enough to induce a three-day blackout, just enough to infuse the memory with fear and doubt. And that's what your brain puts in long-term storage. I start to feel sick. Prim asks the question that's in my mind. And that's what they've done to Peter? Taken his memories of Katniss and distorted them so they're scary? Beatty nods. So scary that he'd see her as life-threatening. That he might try to kill her. Yes, that's our current theory. I cover my face with my arms because this isn't happening. It isn't possible. For someone to make Peter forget that he loves me, no one could do that. But, but you can reverse it, right? Asked Prim. Um, very little data on that says Plutarch. None, really. If hijacking rehabilitation has been attempted before, we've got no access to those records. Well, you're going to try, aren't you? Prim persists. You're not going to just lock him up in some padded room and leave him to suffer? Of course, we'll try, Prim, says Beatty. It's just, we don't know to what degree we'll succeed, if any. My guess is that fearful events are the hardest to root out. They're the ones that we naturally remember the best, after all. And apart from these memories of Katniss, we don't yet know what else has been tampered with, says Plutarch. We're putting together a team of mental health and military professionals to come up with a counterattack. I, personally, feel optimistic that I'll make a full recovery. Do you? says Prim sarcastically. And what do you think, Hamish? I shift my arms slightly so I can see his expression through the crack. He's exhausted and discouraged as he admits. I think Peter might get somewhat better, but I don't think he'll ever be the same. I snap my arms back together, closing the crack, shutting them all out. At least he's alive, says Plutarch, as if he's losing patience with a lot of us. Snow executed Peter's stylist and his prep team on live television tonight. We've no idea what happened to Effie Trinket. Peter's damaged, but he's here. With us. And that's a definite improvement over his situation 12 hours ago. Let's keep that in mind, all right? Plutarch's attempt to cheer me up, laced with the news of another four, possibly five, murders, somehow backfires. Portia. Peter's prep team, Effie, 
The effort to fight back tears makes my throat throb until I'm gasping again. Eventually, they have no choice but to sedate me. When I wake, I wonder if this is the only way I will sleep now, with drugs shot into my arm. I'm glad I'm not supposed to talk for the next two days, because there's nothing I want to say. Or do. In fact, I'm a model patient, my lethargy taken for restraint, obedience to the doctor's orders. I no longer feel like crying. In fact, I can only manage to hold on to one simple thought. An image of Snow's face accompanied by the whisper in my head. I will kill you. My mother and Prim take turns nursing me, coaxing me to swallow bites of soft food. People come in periodically to give me updates on Peter's condition. The high levels of Tractor Jacker venom are working their way out of his body. He's being treated only by strangers, natives of 13. No one from home or the capital has been allowed to see him, to keep any dangerous memories from triggering. A team of strategists worked long hours designing a strategy for his recovery. Gale's not supposed to visit me, as he's confined to bed with some kind of shoulder wound. But on the third night after I've been medicated and the lights turn low for bedtime, he slips quietly into my room. He doesn't speak, just runs his fingers over the bruises on my neck with a touch as light as moth wings, plants a kiss between my eyes, and disappears. The next morning I'm discharged from the hospital with instructions to move quietly and speak only when necessary. I'm not imprinted with a schedule, so I wander around aimlessly until Prim's excuse from her hospital duties to take me to our family's latest compartment. 2212. Identical to the last one, but with no window. Buttercup has now been issued a daily food allowance and a pan of sand that's kept under the bathroom sink. As Prim tucks me into bed, he hops up onto my pillow, vying for her attention. She cradles him, but stays focused on me. Cadmus, I know this whole thing with Peter is terrible for you, but remember, Snow worked on him for weeks and we only had him for a few days. There's a chance that the old Peter, the one who still loves you, is still inside, trying to get back to you. Don't give up on him. I look at my little sister and think how she has inherited the best qualities our family has to offer. My mother's healing hands, my father's level head, and my fight. There's something else there as well, something entirely her own. An ability to look into the confusing mess of life and see things for what they are. Is it possible she could be right? That Peter could return to me? I have to get back to the hospital, Prim says, placing Buttercup on the bed beside me. You two keep each other company, all right? Buttercup springs up off the bed and follows her to the door, complaining loudly when he's left behind. We're about as much company for each other as dirt. After maybe 30 seconds, I know I can't stand being confined in the subterranean cell and leave Buttercup to his own devices. I get lost several times, but eventually I make my way down to special defense. Everyone I pass stares at the bruises, and I can't help feeling self-conscious to the point that I tug my collar up to my ears. Gail must have been released from the hospital this morning as well, because I find him in one of the research rooms with Beatty. They are immersed, heads bent over a drawing, taking a measurement. Versions of the picture litter the table and floor. 
packed on the corkboard walls and occupying several computer screens are other designs of some sort. In the rough lines of one, I recognize Gale's twitch-up snare. What are these? I ask hoarsely, pulling their attention from the sheet. Ah, get this. You've found us out, says Beatty cheerfully. What? Is this a secret? I know Gale's been down here working with Beatty a lot, but I assumed they were messing around with bows and guns. Not really, but I, I've felt a little guilty about it, stealing Gale away from you so much, Beatty admits. Since I've spent most of my time in 13 disoriented, worried, angry, being remade or hospitalized, I can't say Gale's absences have inconvenienced me. Things have not exactly been harmonious between us either. But I let Beatty think he owes me. I hope that you've been putting his time to good use. Come and see, he says, waving me over to a computer screen. This is what they've been doing. Taking the fundamental ideas behind Gale's traps and adapting them into weapons against humans. Bombs, mostly. It's less about the mechanics of the traps than the psychology behind them. Booby-trapping an area that provides something essential to survival a water or food supply, frightening prey so that a large number flee to greater destruction, endangering offspring in order to draw in the actual desired target, the parent, luring the victim into what appears to be a safe haven, where death awaits it. At some point, Galen Beatty left the wilderness behind and focused more on human impulses, like compassion. A bomb explodes. Time is allowed for people to rush to the aid of the wounded, then a second, more powerful bomb kills them as well. That seems to be crossing some sort of line, I say. So, anything goes? They both stare at me. Beatty with doubt, Gale with hostility. I guess there isn't a rule book for what might be acceptable to do to another human being. Sure there is. Beatty and I have been following the same rule book President Snow used when he hijacked Peter, says Gale. Cruel, but to the point. I leave without further comment. I feel if I don't get outside immediately, I'll just go ballistic, but I'm still in special defense when I'm waylaid by Hamish. Come on, he says. We need you back up at the hospital. What for? I'm going to try something on Peter, he answers. They're going to send in the most innocuous person from 12 they can come up with. Find someone that Peter might share childhood memories with, but nothing too close to you. They're screening people now. I know this will be a difficult task, since anyone Peter shares childhood memories with would most likely be from town, and almost none of those people escape the flames. But when we reach the hospital room that's been turned into a workspace for Peter's recovery team, there she sits, chatting with Plutarch. Delhi Cartwright. As always, she gives me a smile that suggests I'm her best friend in the world. She gives this smile to everyone. Cutlass, she calls out. Hi, Daddy, I say. I've heard she and her younger brother had survived. Her parents, who ran the shoe shop in town, weren't as lucky. She looks older, wearing the drab 13 clothes that flatter no one, with her long yellow hair and a practical braid instead of curls. Delhi's a bit thinner than I remember, but she was one of the few kids in District 12 with a couple of pounds to spare. 
The diet here, the stress, the grief of losing her parents have all, no doubt, contributed. How are you doing? I ask. Oh, it's been a lot of changes all at once. Her eyes fill with tears. But everyone's really nice here in 13, don't you think? Delhi means it. She genuinely likes people. All people, not just a select few she's spent years making up her mind about. They've made an effort to make us feel welcome, I say. I think that's a fair statement without going overboard. Are you the one that they've picked to see, Peter? I guess so. Poor Peter. Poor you. I'll never understand the capital, she says. Better not to, maybe, I tell her. Delly's known Peter for a long time, says Plutarch. Oh, yes. Delly's eyes brighten. We played together from when we were little. I used to tell people that he was my brother. What do you think? Hamish asks me. Anything that might trigger memories of you? We were all in the same class, but we never overlapped much, I say. Cadness was always so amusing. I never dreamt that she would notice me, says Delly. She could hunt and go to the hub and everything. Everyone admired her so. Hamish and I both have to take a hard look at her face to double-check if she's joking. To hear Delhi describe it, I had next to no friends because I intimidated people by being so exceptional. Not true. I had next to no friends because I wasn't friendly. Leave it to Delhi to spin me into something wonderful. Delhi always thinks the best of everyone, I explain. I don't think Peter could have bad memories associated with her. And then I remember. Wait. In the capital, when I lied about recognising the Avox girl, Peter covered for me and said that she looked like Delhi. I remember, says Hamish, but I don't know. That wasn't true. Delhi wasn't actually there. I don't think it can compete with years of childhood memories. Especially with such a pleasant companion as Delhi, says Plutarch. Let's give it a shot. Plutarch, Haymitch, and I go into the observation room next to where Pete is confined. It's crowded, with ten members of his recovery team armed with pens and clipboards. The one-way glass and audio setup allow us to watch Peter secretly. He lies on the bed, his arms strapped down. He doesn't fight the restraints, but his hands fidget continuously. His expression seems more lucid than when he tried to strangle me, but it's still not one that completely belongs to him. When the door quietly opens, his eyes widen in alarm, then become confused. Delhi crosses the room tentatively, but as she nears him, she naturally breaks into a smile. Peter? It's Delhi from home. Delhi? Some of the clouds seem to clear. Daily, that's you. Yes, she says with obvious relief. How do you feel? Awful. Where are we? What's happened? Asks Peter. Here we go, says Hamish. I told her to steer clear of any mention of Katniss or the capital, says Plutarch. Just see how much of home she could conjure up. Well, we're in District 13. We live here now says Delhi. Well, that's... That's what those people have been seeing. But it makes no sense. Why aren't we at home? Asks Peter. Delhi bites her lip. 
There was an accident. I miss home badly too. I was only just thinking about those chalk drawings that we used to do on the paving stones. Yours was so wonderful. I remember when you made each one a different animal. Yeah, pigs and cats and things, says Peter. You said about an accident. I can see the sheen of sweat on Deli's forehead as she tries to work around the question. It was bad. No one could... could stay, she says haltingly. Hang in there, girl, says Hamish. But I know they're going to like it here, Peter. The people have always been really nice to us. There's always food and clean clothes, and school's much more interesting, says Deli. Why hasn't my family come to see me? Peter asks. They can't. Deli's tearing up again. A lot of people didn't get out of twelve. So we need to make a new life here. I'm sure they could use a good baker. Do you remember when your father used to let us meet dough girls and boys? There was a fire, says Peter suddenly. Yes, she whispers. Twelve burned down, didn't it? Because of her, says Peter angrily. Because of Katniss, he begins to pull on the restraints. Oh, no, Peter, it wasn't her fault, says Deli. Did she tell you that? He hisses at her. Get her out of there, says Plutarch. The door opens immediately and Deli begins to back toward it. She didn't have to. I was... Deli begins. Because she's lying! She's a liar! You can't believe anything she says! She's some kind of muck and the capital created against the rest of us! Peter shouts. No, Peter, she's not a... Deli tries again. Don't trust her, Deli! Says Peter in a frantic voice. I did! And she tried to kill me! She killed my friends! My family don't go near her! She's a mutt! A hand reaches through the doorway, pulls Deli out, and the door swings shut. But Peter keeps yelling. A mutt! She's a stinking mutt! Not only does he hate me and want to kill me, he no longer believes I'm human. It was less painful being strangled. Around me, the recovery team members scribble like crazy, taking down every word. Hamish and Plutarch grab my arms and propel me out of the room. They lean me up against the wall in the silent hallway. But I know Peter continues to scream behind the door in the glass. Prim was wrong. Peter is irretrievable. I can't stay here anymore, I say numbly. If you want me to be the Mockingjay, you'll have to send me away. Where do you want to go? asks Hamish. The capital. It's the only place I can think of where I have a job to do. Can't do it, Plutarch says. Not till all the districts are secure. Good news is, the fighting's almost over in all of them but two. It's a tough nut to crack, though. That's right. First the districts, next the capital. And then I hunt down snow. Fine, I say. Send me to two.
<laughs> oh man, we had a um, a return special guest on uh, yesterday's show on our Wednesday show, um, Chaotic Darby playing as Chew. <laughs> <laughs> and Darby, I don't even know if it made it into the stream or if it was just during the pre-show, but <laughs> there was this soundboard clip she kept playing. That <laughs> just emotional damage. It was very funny. Um, and uh, I'm thinking about that right now because that is roundabout where we are at. Bowtie Fox says, that was a real good twist of the knife there. Ouch. Um, Hogwarts Hippie says, right, I had a feeling that wouldn't go well. I have to be honest, I feel like having a, maybe this is just me and I, I don't know if I could trace why I feel this way, but I think for me, hearing that like, hearing someone in this situation be like, Sam is, Sam's evil, Sam did all this stuff, that to me would be more difficult than hearing someone say, Sam's a mutt, he's not real, or he's like, I, I don't know, to me that just means like, this is so ungrounded in reality, this is so deeply fictitious, um, that it would hurt less to me hearing like, Sam's not real, Sam's some sort of uh, uh, genetic creation uh, made in a lab somewhere. That to me I think would hurt less, I don't know. I don't know if it, that's the same for everybody. Not that this by any means makes the, just knocked over a trash can. That's how, that's how wound up this makes me. I think that if I, yeah, I, I think it, it, it does not really improve the situation by much, but hearing that, I think I would feel very differently from Katniss. It sounds like, sounds like that was the worst part of it for her, but I think for me, that would be like, <sighs> okay, all right, this is terrible, terrible, but it's so deeply fictitious that... Hopefully, just having PETA living in reality for a while will help him to sort of come out of this. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, exactly, Proteus Spade. Sam is spy robots made by the CIA. He recharges on telephone wires. Yeah, I just, I just get down on all fours next to an electrical outlet and snort. Um, I think that, <laughs> to me, would be a little easier to deal with. And I think it's just because... Um, I don't know, it, it would be hard to maintain that delusion when presented with real life. There's a lot that could, like, you know, just being, if, if the extent of the lie was like, yeah, Sam has actually been working against you the whole time. Sam is actually, you know, evil with this despicable plan to work with these awful people. All of that, like living in reality would, would be harder to get to sort of like push away mentally, I think, I think, than Everything in the world is normal. I've been, you know, I've been here in District 13 for a few months now. The tracker jacker venom is worn off. I've been working with all these therapists and such. And everything is normal. I recognize that. Except there's this one person who's actually a mutt that's a totally unique mutt. And it's never been done before. But Katniss is. I think that would be a much harder thing to sort of, like, keep constructed in my mind. Um, and so I feel like that would sort of, like, it would fall away a little easier over time. But yeah, it's a lot. It's a lot, and it only makes it. It would only make it very, very marginally better to me. Um, just kind of a kind of a bit of a sidetrack conversation, but but, folks, I hope you were enjoying so far. I remember. I remember. Proteus Spade wrote the word "remember," and I just went ahead. It, it hijacked my sentence. <laughs> Thanks a lot, Proteus Spade. Um, I think. I think that. Uh, um, 
this one has been a pretty emotional chapter, um, as as have many in the past, but um, we're going to be seeing some different things here in the chapters coming up. Um, let me go ahead and get my AC turned back on. I'm going to keep it off during the chapters, but but uh, I'm going to pop it on for right now. Um, let's see. We've got to talk a bit of a chapter break. We've got a chatter break, and um, once I ask that question, we're going to roll on into review, and then our next chapter. Um, for anyone who wonders what this is all about, my name is Sam. This is Sidecar Stories. Use the links command at any time if you want the link to all of the stuff sidecar related. So, chatterbrick question. I think we have to bounce back with Katniss for right now because PETA, frankly, PETA is in a state that is awful but not difficult to understand. Right, so I don't think there's a, there's a ton of discussion necessarily to be had around PETA because this is you know this is part of the quality of sort of brainwashing or or torture or any of these things. Um, it is the, the idea is to sort of make you into something different than what you were before. It's to change you, and so um, this you know wh whatever discussions that we have about PETA right now aren't going to be worth a ton because it's not really PETA. It's the stuff that was sort of like pushed at PETA. Um, and so for Katniss, let's bounce back with Katniss here. Um, and also with Hamish, because they are, of course, the two people kind of closest to PETA in the world. As a matter of fact, really literally the two closest people to PETA in the world right now, um, because his family obviously did not make it. The two of them are obviously going to be feeling a lot of guilt. Uh, my chatterbreak question for us here is, in the wake of this discovery of PETA's true condition, how are the two of them going to fare? Katniss and Hamish. How are they going to, are they going to be effective? Are they going, is this going to be worse for them than having PETA be sort of locked up in the Capitol? How are these two characters going to fare now that this, this one thing that the Capitol kind of held over their heads beyond the generalized threat of violence, this one thing, they had Peter captive and they don't anymore. But he's not in good shape. How are the two of them going to going to cope with this? There we go. Let's talk a bit of review. Um, for those of you who are joining us a bit late, welcome back. This is almost dead center in the middle of this book. Uh, I think next week will technically be dead center in the middle. Uh, but we're in chapter 14, which means we just read chapter 13. Uh, a bit of review on the book as a whole. Katniss has cleared two Hunger Games and officially accepted the mantle of the Mockingjay. She now works with Slash 4, District 13, um, as a kind of a poster person, um, a voice, a face to put onto the Rebellion because people are psychologically kind of interesting like that. We, we like to have symbols to look to and significant people, even if, and I've said it so many times before, even if the small fight is as or more important than the, 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 the perceived big fight. The small fight is enormous. Um, so, keep that in mind. Uh, but Katniss has agreed to do this. In chapter 13, we are reeling from the discovery that after the secret mission to retrieve PETA, to bring PETA back into uh, District 13 with them and pull him out of the Capitol's clutches. After this mission, PETA is back 
and tries to kill Katniss because, as we discover over the course of this chapter, he has been hijacked. Um, they sort of have him recall memories about Katniss and then dose him with small doses of Tracker Jacker Venom, which means that every time he thinks about Katniss, he gets these sort of like memories of fear and they've changed memories in his head. Um, it's really, really terrible. But um, what we are, what we're experiencing right now is Katniss just trying to deal with this. Um, Obviously, PETA is in no shape to really interact with most people because lots of people are connected in his mind to Katniss in some way. Uh, they managed to send in someone from 13 that he has got these really, like, young childhood memories of, but nothing to really connect uh, with Katniss. Uh, Deli Cartwright. And so they're able to send her in. They get a very little bit of information from him just about where he's at mentally, but for the most part, he kind of freaks out immediately. And we discover that the big thing that he thinks here is that Katniss is evil, that he's been working against them, that she is um, uh, that she is some sort of traitor, but most of all, that she's a mutt created by the capital. Mutt being short for mutations. These are mutations. Um, it's one of the it's one of those. If y'all have been hanging out with me on Wednesdays for some of our world-building streams, you know, like, I've got this big thing about words that both read well, they look good on the page, and also they sound good. Mutations is one of those that looks great on the page, but when you try to say it out loud, it, you sound like a real numpty. So, <laughs> um, she, he believes that she is a, a mutt, and um, so Katniss is... I mean, kind of agonized by his current position here, and as such, requests to be sent somewhere else. Out of 13, send me to the capital, she says. It's not quite time for that yet. They're still fighting to do in two. We've got, the fighting's almost over in all of the districts except for District 2. It was always going to be the toughest not to crack. And so she says, fine, send me to District 2. Chapter 14. District 2 is a large district, as one might expect, composed of a series of villages spread across the mountains. Each was originally associated with a mine or quarry, although now many are devoted to the housing and training of peacekeepers. None of this would present much of a challenge, since the rebels have 13's air power on their side, except for one thing. At the center of the district is a virtually impenetrable mountain that houses the heart of the capital's military. We've nicknamed the mountain the Nut, since I relayed Plutarch's tough-not-to-crack comment to the weary and discouraged rebel leaders here. The Nut was established directly after the Dark Days, when the capital had lost 13 and was in desperate need of a new underground stronghold. They had some of their military resources situated on the outskirts of the capital itself, nuclear missiles, aircraft, troops... But a significant chunk of their power was now under the enemy's control. Of course, there was no way they could hope to replicate 13, which is the work of centuries. However, in the old mines of nearby District 2, they saw an opportunity. From the air, 
The nut appeared to be just another mountain with a few entrances on its faces, but inside were vast, cavernous spaces where slabs of stone had been cut, hauled to the surface, and transported down slippery, narrow roads to make distant buildings. There was even a train system to facilitate transportating... Transportating? Ooh, that ain't it. There was even a train system to facilitate transporting the miners from the nut to the very center of the main town in District 2. It ran right through the square that Peta and I visited during their victory tour. Standing on the wide marble steps of the Justice Building, trying not to look too closely at Cato's and Clove's grieving families assembled below us. It was not the most ideal terrain, plagued as it was by mudslides, floods, and avalanches. But the advantages outweighed the concerns. As they had cut deep into the mountain, the miners had left large pillars and walls of stone to support the infrastructure. The capital reinforced these and set about making the mountain their new military base, filling it with computer banks and meeting rooms, barracks and arsenals, widening entrances to allow the exit of aircraft from the hangar, installing missile launchers, but on the whole leaving the exterior of the mountain largely unchanged. A rough, rocky tangle of trees and wildlife. A natural fortress to protect them from their enemies. By the other district standards, the capital babied the inhabitants here. Just by looking at the District 2 rebels, you can tell they were decently fed and cared for in childhood. Some did end up as quarry and mine workers. Others were educated for jobs in the nut, or funneled through the ranks of the peacekeepers. Trained young and hard for combat. The Hunger Games were an opportunity for wealth and a kind of glory not seen elsewhere. Of course, the people of Two swallowed the capital's propaganda more easily than the rest of us, embraced their ways. But for all that, at the end of the day, they were still slaves. And if that was lost on the citizens who became peacekeepers or worked in the nut, it was not lost on the stonecutters who formed the backbone of the resistance here. Things stand as they did when I arrived two weeks ago. The outer villages are in rebel hands, the town divided, and the nut is as untouchable as ever. Its few entrances heavily fortified, its heart safely enfolded in the mountain. While every other district has now wrested control from the capital, two remains in its pocket. Each day, I do whatever I can to help. Visit the wounded, tape short propos with my camera crew. I'm not allowed in actual combat, but they invite me to the meetings on the status of the war, which is a lot more than they did in 13. It's much better here. Freer. No schedules on my arms, fewer demands on my time. I live above ground in the rebel villages or surrounding caves. For safety's sake, I'm relocated often. During the day, I've been given clearance to hunt as long as I take a guard along and don't stray too far. In the thin, cold mountain air, I feel some physical strength returning, my mind clearing away the rest of the fogginess. But with this mental clarity comes an even sharper awareness of what has been done to Peta. Snow has stolen him from me, twisted him beyond recognition, and made me a present of him. Boggs, who came to two when I did, told me that even with all the plotting, it was a little too easy to rescue Peta. He believes if Thirteen hadn't made the effort, Peta would have been delivered to me anyway. Dropped off in an actively warring district, or perhaps Thirteen itself. Tied up with ribbons and tagged with my name. Programmed to murder me. It's only now that he's been corrupted that I can fully appreciate the real Peta, even more than I would have if he had died. 
the kindness, the steadiness, the warmth that had an unexpected heat behind it. Outside of Prim, my mother and Gail, how many people in the world love me unconditionally? I think in my case, the answer may well be none now. Sometimes when I'm alone, I take the pearl from where it lives in my pocket and try to remember the boy with the bread. The strong arms that warded off nightmares on the train. The kisses in the arena. To make myself put a name to the thing that I've lost. But what's the use? It's gone. He's gone. Whatever existed between us is gone. All that's left is my promise to kill Snow. I tell myself this ten times a day. Back in 13, Peter's rehabilitation continues. Even though I don't ask, Plutarch gives me cheerful updates on the phone, like, Good news, Katniss! I think we've almost got him convinced you're not a mutt! Or, Today he was allowed to feed himself pudding! When Hamish gets on after, he admits Peter's no better. The only dubious ray of hope has come from my sister. Prim came up with the idea of trying to hijack him back, Hamish tells me. Bring up the distorted memories of you and then give him a big dose of a calming drug, like morphling. We've only tried it on one memory. Now the tape of you two in the cave, when you told him that story about getting Prim the goat. Any improvement? I ask. Well... If extreme confusion is an improvement over extreme terror, then... Yes, says Hamish. But I'm not sure that it is. He, he lost the ability to speak for several hours. He went into some sort of stupor. And then when he came out, the only thing that he asked about was the goat. Right, I say. How's it out there? He asks. No forward motion, I tell him. We're sending out a team to help with the mountain. Uh, BT and some of the others, he says. You know, the brains. When the brains are selected, I'm not surprised to see Gail's name on the list. I thought Petey would bring him, not for his technological expertise, but in the hopes that he could somehow think of a way to ensnare a mountain. Originally, Gail offered to come with me to two, but I could see him tearing away from his work with Petey. I told him to sit tight and stay where he was most needed. I didn't tell him his presence would make it even more difficult for me to mourn Peter. Gail finds me when they arrive late one afternoon. I'm sitting on a log at the edge of my current village, plucking a goose. A dozen or so of the birds are piled up here since I arrived, and the pickings are easy. Without a word, Gail settles beside me and begins to relieve a bird of its feathers. We're about halfway through when he says, Any chance we'll get to eat these? Yeah. I was going to the camp kitchen, but they expect me to give a couple to whoever I'm staying with tonight, I say, for keeping me. Isn't the owner of the thing enough, he says. You'd think, I reply, but the word's gotten out that mocking jays are hazardous to your health. We pluck in silence for a while longer, and then he says, I saw Peter yesterday, through the glass. What did you think? I asked. Something selfish, says Gail. That you don't have to be jealous of him anymore. My fingers give a yank and a cloud of feathers floats down around us. No. Just the opposite. Gail pulls a feather out of my hair. 
I thought, I'll never compete with that. No matter how much pain I'm in. He spins the feather between his thumb and forefinger. I don't stand a chance if he doesn't get better. They'll never be able to let him go. You know, I was going to feel wrong about being with me. The way I always felt wrong kissing him because of you, I say. Gail holds my gaze. If I thought that was true, I could almost live with the rest of it. It is true, I admit. But so's what you said about Peter. Gail makes a sound of exasperation. Nonetheless, after we've dropped off the birds and volunteered to go back to the woods to gather kindling for the evening fire, I find myself wrapped in his arms. His lips brushing the faded bruises on my neck, working their way to my mouth. Despite what I feel for Peta, this is when I accept deep down he'll never come back to me. Or I'll never go back to him. I'll stay in two until it falls, go to the capital and kill snow, and then die for my trouble. And he'll die insane and hating me. So in the fading light, I shut my eyes and kiss Gale to make up for all the kisses I've withheld. And because it doesn't matter anymore. And because I'm so desperately lonely, I can't stand it. Gale's touch and taste and heat remind me at least my body's still alive. And for the moment, it's a welcome feeling. I empty my mind and let the sensations run through my flesh, happy to lose myself. When Gale pulls away slightly, I move forward to close the gap, but I feel his hand under my chin. Cadmus, he says. The instant I open my eyes, the world seems disjointed. This is not our woods or our mountain or our way. My hand automatically goes to the scar on my left temple, which I associate with confusion. Now kiss me. Bewildered, unblinking, I stand there while he leans in and presses his lips to mine briefly. He examines my face closely. What's going on in your head? I don't know, I whisper back. And it's like kissing someone who was drunk. Doesn't count, he says with a weak attempt at a laugh. He scoops up a pile of kindling and drops it into my empty arms, returning me to myself. How do you know? I say, mostly to cover my embarrassment. Have you kissed someone who was drunk? I guess Gail could have been kissing girls right and left back in 12. He certainly had enough takers. I never thought about it much before. He just shakes his head. No. But it's not hard to imagine. So you never kissed any other girls? I ask. Well, I didn't say that. You know, you were only twelve when we met. And a real pain besides. I did have a life outside of haunting with you, he says, loading up with firewood. And suddenly I'm genuinely curious. How did you kiss? And where? Too many to remember. Behind the school, on the slag heap, you name it, he says. I roll my eyes. And so when did I become so special? When they carted me off to the capital? No. About six months before that. Right after New Year's. We were in the hob, eating some slop, out of Greasy says. And Darius was teasing me about trading a rabbit for one of his kisses. And I realised I minded. 
I remember that day. Bitter cold and dark by four in the afternoon. We'd been hunting, but a heavy snow had driven us back into town. The hob was crowded with people looking for refuge from the weather. Greasy Say's soup, made with the stock from the bones of a wild dog we had shot a week earlier, was below her usual standards. Still, it was hot and I was starving as I scooped it up, sitting cross-legged on her counter. Darius was leaning on the post of the stall, tickling my cheek with the end of my braid while I smacked his hand away. He was explaining why one of his kisses merited a rabbit, or possibly two, since everyone knows red-headed men are the most virile. And Greasy Say and I were laughing because he was so ridiculous and persistent and kept pointing out women around the hob, who, he said, had paid far more than a rabbit to enjoy his lips. See? Uh, the one in the green muffler? Go ahead and ask her, if you need a reference. A million miles from here. A billion days ago this happened. Darius was just choking around, I say. Probably. Although you'd be the last to figure it out if he wouldn't, Gail tells me. Take Peter. Take me. Or even Finnick. I was starting to worry that he had his eye on you. But he seems back on track now. <laughs> you don't know Finnick if you think he'd love me, I say. Gail shrugs. I know he was desperate. That makes people do all kinds of crazy things. I can't help thinking that's directed at me. Bright and early the next morning, the brains assemble to take on the problem of the nut. I'm asked to the meeting, although I don't have much to contribute. I avoid the conference table and perch in the wide window sill that has a view of the mountain in question. The commander from two, a middle-aged woman named Lime, takes us on a virtual tour of the nut with its interior and fortifications and recounts the failed attempts to seize it. I've crossed paths with her briefly a couple of times since my arrival, and was dogged by the feeling that I had met her before. She's memorable enough, standing over six feet tall and heavily muscled. But it's only when I see a clip of her in the field, leading a raid on the main entrance of the nut, that something clicks and I realize I'm in the presence of another victor. Lime, the tribute from District 2, who won her Hunger Games over a generation ago. Effie sent us her tape, among others, to prepare for the quarter quell. I've probably caught glimpses of her during the games over the years, but she's kept a low profile. With my newfound knowledge of Haymitch's and Finnick's treatment, all I can think of is, what did the capital do to her after she won? When Lime finishes the presentation, the questions from the brains begin. Hours pass, and lunch comes and goes, and they try to come up with a realistic plan for taking the nut. But while Beatty thinks he might be able to override certain computer systems, and there's some discussion of putting the handful of internal spies to use, no one really has any innovative thoughts. As the afternoon wears on, talk keeps returning to a strategy that has been tried repeatedly, the storming of the entrances. I can see Lime's frustration building because so many variations of this plan have already failed. So many of her soldiers have been lost. Finally, she bursts out, Next person who suggests that we take the entrances better have a brilliant way to do it, because you are going to be the leader of that mission. Gail, who's too restless to sit and wait for more than a few hours, has been alternating between pacing and sharing my windowsill. Early on, he seemed to accept Lime's assertion that the entrances couldn't be taken, and dropped out of the conversation entirely. For the last hour or so, he sat quietly, his brow knitted in concentration, 
staring at the nut through the window glass. In the silence that follows Lime's ultimatum, he speaks up. Is it really necessary to take the nut? Or would it be enough to disable it? That would be a step in the right direction, says Beatty. What do you have in mind? Think of it as a wild dog, Dan, Gail continues. You're not going to fight your way in, so you got two choices. Either trap the dogs inside or flush them out. We've tried bombing the entrances, says Lime. They're set too far inside the stone for any real damage to be done. I wasn't thinking of that, says Gail. I was thinking of using the mountain. Beatty rises and joins Gail at the window, peering through his ill-fitting glasses. See that, running down the sides? Avalanche paths, says Beatty under his breath. It would be tricky. We would have to redesign the detonation sequence with great care, and, and once it's in motion, we couldn't hope to control it. We don't need to control it if we give up the idea that we've got to possess the nut, says Gale. I only shut it down. So you're suggesting we start avalanches and block the entrances, says Lime. That's it, says Gale. Trap the enemy inside, cut off from supplies, make it impossible for them to send out their hovercraft. While everyone considers the plan, Boggs flips through a stack of blueprints of the nut and frowns. You risk killing everyone inside. Look at the ventilation system. It's rudimentary at best. Nothing like what we've got in 13. It depends entirely on pumping in air from the mountainsides. You block those vents and you'll suffocate whoever's trapped. They could still escape through the train to the square. Not if we blow it up, says Gale brusquely. His intent, his full intent, becomes clear. Gale has no interest in preserving the lives of those in the nut. No interest in caging the prey for later use. This is one of his death traps. boy now we've talked before about how you know I, I tend to give people the the benefit of the doubt I try to wait on evidence but we are starting to get that evidence about Gale right now Gale is if not vicious at the very least he is so caught up in what damage was done to him and people that he cares about that he it seems is willing to do some very questionable things we're going to have to see how this plays out in the future. I'm going to ask a larger question for our chatter break, though. My question is about District 2. This is a group of people who has so long been kind of the favorite of the 12. Um, they are currently reacting differently than many of the other districts, right? They're fighting the, the hardest and the last um, against the rebellion. Um... They are still with the capital, in spite of how things are looking for that process right now. Um, my question is, if they are going to surrender, 
what happens next? What part could they play in the rebellion? Um, how are they going to react to being to, to this demand of surrender? Um, of course, you know, the rebels are going to keep fighting. District 2 is going to keep fighting. But whoever comes out on top of this, the question does kind of come down to something that, frankly, they've already been thinking about, I'm sure. Are they going to join the rebellion? And if so, why? If not, why not? There's our Cheddar Break question about District 2. Their position is so different from the other districts. How are the people inside District 2 feeling about the prospect that the rebellion is now at their gates? There's our Cheddar Break question. I'm going to take a quick five-minute break, and then I'll be right back for our third and final chapter of the evening. Catch the, uh, the timer up on screen. I love y'all. I'll see you in five. Bye-bye. Hello, everyone, and welcome back. It is grand to see you all once more. We've got our chatter break question up in the mix. What is District 2 going to be feeling about this whole rebellion deal, considering they've had a pretty different relationship with the capital than most of the rest of them? Big Mama says, I'm a little more interested in Sam's supposition earlier about a delusion being labeled as a mutt easier than evil. <laughs> Um, yeah, Big Mama, yeah, it's just, um, uh, I don't know, I feel like, I feel like that one would just so firmly cement it that it's like, okay, this isn't something that is anywhere inside this person to feel about me, none of it's real, um, so that to me would feel a little, a little bit better, because it's so obviously kind of like cartoonishly, uh, bad impression of me that I don't think that that bad impression would survive in their mind for long. Um, let's see about this chatter break question, though. Um, let me see, let me see. Let me see, let me see, let me see. Um, talking about Gale, certainly discussion to be had there. Hogwarts Hippie says, honestly, I think District 2 will come around and realize that the capital is corrupt, but I think they'll be the last to do so. Um, I imagine that, uh, because they're the favorite district, many of them are nearly as crooked as snow. Indeed, that, that sort of relationship... So I will say, certainly, that they have been the last district to do so. Um, Plutarch, I think it was, made uh, a comment kind of in passing that District 2 is one of the last places that fighting is still going on super actively. Um, all of the rest of the districts seem to have... seem to be sort of wrapping up their conflicts. Um, which means that they're, they're winning. They're winning, but they still have the two biggest pieces. It's a little bit like... Um, I don't know, playing chess, and you've got plenty of pieces on the board, but you've never had a queen, and you've never had a castle, um, and uh, your opponent, they're down to just a few pieces, but those few pieces are maybe a few pawns, but then they've got a castle and their queen. That is a dangerous combination, and so, um, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's asymmetrical, but still very, very difficult, uh, what they've got coming up next. But I also like what you said, Hogwarts Hippie, about them being the favorite district, that some of them are nearly as crooked as snow. This is one of the things that when I sort of made my study of uh, power structures and cults specifically, um, it was almost required, it seemed. One of the best ways for a, um, a, a corrupt leader to maintain power was to offer corruption underneath as well, because then... District 2 has just as much sort of skin in the game as the capital itself. Um, if you if you offer a bunch of people like, hey, if I stay in power, 
um, A, you get to keep doing the corrupt stuff that you're doing, and B, no one's going to find out the corrupt stuff that you're doing. That means that oh, I've got this whole group of people that's really, really interested in keeping me in power, right? Corruption, it, it breeds underneath um, uh, undeserving structures of power. Bowtie Fox says, as for District 2, they really are trapped in a rock and a hard place. Get killed by the capital or by the other districts. That's not somewhere that you'd want to be. Even if they are the capital's favorite, who's to say that they would ever let any of them go or not distrust you? Yeah, it would be a pretty solid show of loyalty for, you know, for District 2 to, you know, keep fighting to the end um, against these rebels. And yet, you know, what, what's the best that they can hope for? What's, what's the best, like, kudos they're going to get? There's still going to be a district um, that uh, still isn't the capital. You know, there's there's still so, sort of um, uh, sub, what is it, well, subservient to the capital, right? So in some people's minds, I'm sure there is this element of corruption. I think we can probably guess that it's closer to the top. But then for the rest of them, and it mentions specifically the mining workers, for the rest of them, They've got to be thinking something along the lines of like, yeah, what are we fighting so hard for? What what is this place of uh, what is this position that we're fighting so hard to return to? Being slightly better off than all the rest of the 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 abused dogs in this kennel? Why? Why bother? But same time they have also been so so deeply invested for such a long time in this not just the power structure but also in their like definition of themselves as warriors as winners of the hunger games as as, as ways to win glory they're also sort of they have bought in the most to this piece of this massive piece of propaganda of the hunger games themselves the hunger games are these massive bits of propaganda to keep the districts kind of working against one another right every district is bitter about every other district for some year when your tribute killed our tribute district two is the one that has the most bought into this idea that it's us against them it's us district two is is uh gonna gonna beat out all the other districts uh in the hunger games every year and i have to think that may well carry over to this feeling of uh rebellions versus us here on outside of the arena Orly Rose says, I wouldn't be surprised if they expose peacekeepers to a less intense version of the Tracker Jacker to, con to ensure their loyalty. That almost seems like something that could well come up in, like, uh, Ballad of Songbirds and, and Snakes, I think is what it's called. Which I do intend to read, by the way. I know it wasn't on the vote, uh, but that's simply because I've, I've already committed to, the, to uh, the plan to read that one. Um, let me see. Big Mama says, also, we all have doubts about our worth because we're acutely aware of our own darkness. So if someone who has loved us calls us evil, we can digest that and agree with it on some level, even if everyone thinks that we're great. So that's back to the, the discussion about PETA. And, uh, yeah, I think there is a, a very long discussion to be had there. I don't think there's any any short version of that discussion. But, yeah, uh, I, think, I think in my mind, just hearing something that's so obviously fictitious would be a bit of a relief just to know that like this is how far gone they are and so we could, if we can bring them back even a little bit that means that the the like the cornerstone of this delusion will be gone 
if we can get them to sort of check back into the real world at all, one of the first things that will disappear from their mind is this fear of, like, this one unique case. It, it, it's the paranoia. The paranoia in this specific case will, I think, be one of the first things to go. But again, that's a different discussion. A bit of review. Katniss is the Mockingjay working to uh, defeat the other districts. Has managed to get back PETA. She didn't do it herself. District 13 mounted a mission and uh, Gale was actually involved in it. Um, but they've got PETA back. As of our first chapter of this evening, he does not seem to be doing particularly well. He is... He's been hijacked, uh, which is a sort of combination of torture and tracker jacker venom. Uh, he is convinced, he's been brainwashed to believe that Katniss is not only evil, but a mutt, uh, sort of designed in the capital to kill them all. So, Katniss, um, although she, you know, although she is glad that he's not in the clutches of the capital anymore, this is too hard for her to deal with. So, she asks to be sent away. The the last kind of bastion in the district of, uh, what, resistance against the resistance? That doesn't make much sense. Um, basically, all of the other districts have, they're kind of winding down their fighting. They are nearing, nearing the end of uh, this row. They're nearing victory. Only the capital, of course, but also District 2 are still fighting against them. Um, and so... They head off to District 2. They have to take that before they can take the capital. Um, they arrive. There is this big mountain called the Nut. Uh, it used to be this big mining operation, and then they realized, the capital kind of realized, okay, we need kind of a secondary base of operations in case something happens to the capital, you know, like it did uh, at, at times during uh, the, the first war 75 years ago. And so they build out this place, this sort of impenetrable mountain fortress. Um... Uh, Katniss is here trying to decide what to do next, um, has met up with the leader of the resistance in District 2, uh, a woman named Lyme, L-Y-M-E. She is a former victor from the Hunger Games, uh, and she is working with the resistance to overcome the capital's power, uh, but she has stated how many times they have tried to take the entrances and um, how many times they've failed, how many people they have lost. So that's not looking like a good option, but Gail who has been working with, with Beatty. Uh, the two of them have been working very actively on traps. But not traps for animals, traps for humans. Lots of bombs, lots of lots of uh, psychological components to their strategy here. And Gale suggests avalanches. We don't, if we don't need to take the nut, if we just need to defeat it, what we can do is cause some avalanches, cover up the cover up the the, the the sort of air vents and stuff and just essentially choke the whole thing out. He says to think of it like a, a, a wild dog's den. You can't fight your way in and so you either have to trap them in or push them out. Um, and he suggests we destroy the train that could get them out of the mountain and then we cause some avalanches to shut up all of the, the air vents. It seems that Gale this Gale that we feel like we know fairly well, whatever is going on in his mind, whatever drives him to work against the capital, it has driven him so far as to decide this would make for a good death trap, an entire mountain.
Chapter 15 The implications of what Gale is suggesting settle quietly around the room. You can see the reaction playing out on people's faces. The expressions range from pleasure to distress, from sorrow to satisfaction. The majority of the workers are citizens from two, says Beatty neutrally. So what? says Gale. We'll never be able to trust them again. They should at least have a chance to surrender, says Lime. Well, that's a luxury that we weren't given when they firebombed twelve. But you're all so much cozier with the capital here, says Gale. At the look on Lime's face, I think she might shoot him, or at least take a swing. She'd probably have the upper hand, too, with all of her training. But her anger only seems to infuriate him, and he yells, We watched children burn to death, and there was nothing we could do about it! I have to close my eyes for a minute as the image rips through me. It has the desired effect. I want everyone that mounted dead. I'm about to say so, but then I'm also a girl from District 12, not President Snow. I can't help it. I can't condemn someone to the death that he's suggesting. Gail, I say, taking his arm and trying to speak in a reasonable tone. They're not just an old mine. It'd be like causing a massive coal mining accident. Surely the words are enough to make anyone from 12 think twice about the plan. But not so quick as the one that killed our fathers, he retorts. Is that everyone's problem? That our enemies might have a few hours to reflect on the fact that they're dying, instead of just being blown to bits? Back in the old days, when we were nothing more than a couple of kids hunting outside of Twelve, Gale said things like this, and worse. But then they were just words. Here, put into practice, they become deeds that can never be reversed. You don't know how those District 2 people ended up in the nut, I say. They may have been coerced. They might even be held against their will. Some are our own spies. Would you kill them too? I'd sacrifice a few, yeah, if it'll take out the rest of them, he replies. And if I were a spy in there, I'd say, bring on the avalanches. I know he's telling the truth. That Gail would sacrifice his life in this way for the cause. No one doubts it. Perhaps we would all do the same if we were the spies and given the choice. I guess I would. But it's a cold-hearted decision to make for other people and those who love them. You said we had two choices, Boggs tells him. To trap them in the tunnel or flush them out. I say we try to avalanche the mountain but leave the train tunnel alone. People can escape into the square where we'll be waiting for them. Heavily armed, I hope, says Gale. You can be sure that they'll be. Heavily armed. We'll take him prisoner, agrees Boggs. Let's bring Thirteen into the loop now, says Beatty. Let President Coyne weigh in. She'll want to block up the tunnel, says Gale with conviction. Yes, most likely. But, you know, Peter did have a point in his propos about the dangers of killing ourselves off. I've been playing with some numbers, factoring in the casualties and the wounded, and I... I think it's... At least worth a conversation, says Beatty. Only a handful of people are invited to that part of the conversation. Gale and I are released with the rest. I take him hunting so we can blow off some steam, but he's not talking about it. Probably too angry with me for countering him. A call does happen, a decision is made, and by the evening I'm suited up in my Mockingjay outfit. 
with my bow slung over my shoulder and an earpiece that connects me to Haymitch in 13, just in case a good opportunity for a propo arises. We wait on the roof of the Justice Building with a clear view of our target. Our hover planes are initially ignored by the commanders in the nut, because in the past, they've been little more than flies buzzing around a honeypot. But after two rounds of bombings in the higher elevations of the mountain, the planes have their attention. By the time the capital's anti-aircraft weapons begin to fire, it's already too late. Gale's plan exceeds anyone's expectation. Beatty was right about being unable to control the avalanches once they'd been set into motion. The mountainsides are naturally unstable, but weakened by the explosion, they seem almost fluid. While sections of the nut collapse before our eyes, obliterating any sign that human beings have ever set foot in the place, we stand speechless, tiny and insignificant, as waves of stone thunder down the mountain, burying the entrances under tons of rock, raising a cloud of dirt and debris that blackens the sky, turning the nut into a tomb. I imagine the hell inside the mountain. Sirens wailing, lights flickering into darkness, stone dust choking the air. The shrieks of panicked, trapped beings stumbling madly for a way out, only to find that the entrances, the launch pad, the ventilation shafts themselves are clogged with earth and rock trying to force its way in. Live wires flung free, fires breaking out, rubble making a familiar path into a maze. People slamming, shoving, scrambling like ants as the hill presses in, threatening to crush their fragile shells. God, nice. Hamage's voice is in my earpiece. I try to answer back and find both of my hands are clamped tightly over my mouth. Nice. On the day my father died, the sirens went off during my school lunch. No one waited for dismissal or was expected to. The response to a mine accident was something outside of the control of even the capital. I ran to Prim's class. I still remember her. Tiny, at seven, very pale, but sitting straight up with her hands folded on her desk, waiting for me to collect her as I'd promised I would if the sirens ever sounded. She sprang out of her seat, grabbed my coat sleeve, and we wove through the streams of people pouring out onto the streets to pool at the main entrance of the mine. We found our mother clenching the rope that had been hastily strung to keep the crowd back. In retrospect, I guess I should have known there was a problem right then. Because why were we looking for her when the reverse should have been true? The elevators were screeching, burning up and down their cables as they vomited smoke-blackened miners into the light of day. With each group came cries of relief, relatives diving under the rope to lead off their husbands, Wives, children, parents, siblings. We stood in the freezing air as the afternoon turned overcast, a light snow dusting the earth. The elevators moved more slowly now and disgorged fewer beings. I knelt on the ground and pressed my hands to the cinders, wanting so badly to pull my father free. If there's a more helpless feeling than trying to reach someone you love who's trapped underground, I don't know it. The wounded the bodies, the wading through the night, blankets put around your shoulders by strangers, a mug of something hot that you don't drink, and then, finally, at dawn, the grieved expression on the face of the mine captain that could only mean one thing. What did we just do?
Yes, are you there? Hey, Mage is probably making plans to have me fitted for the head shackle at this very moment. I drop my hands. Yes. Get inside. Just in case the capital tries to retaliate with what's left of its air force. He instructs. Yes, I repeat. Everyone on the roof, except for the soldiers manning the machine guns, begin to make their way inside. As I descend the stairs, I can't help brushing my fingers along the unblemished white marble walls. So cold and beautiful. Even in the capital, there's nothing to match the magnificence of this old building. But there's no give to the surface. Only my flesh yields, my warmth taken. Stone conquers people every time. I sit at the base of one of the gigantic pillars in the great entrance hall. Through the doors, I can see the white expanse of marble that leads to the steps on the square. I remember how sick I was the day that Peta and I accepted congratulations there for winning the games. Worn down by the victory tour, failing in my attempt to calm the districts, facing the memories of Clove and Cato, particularly Cato's gruesome, slow death by the mutts. Boggs crouches down beside me, his skin pale in the shadows. We didn't bomb the train tunnel, you know. Some of them will probably get out. And then we'll shoot them when they show their faces, I ask. Only if we have to. We could send in trains ourselves, help to evacuate the wounded? No. It was decided to leave the tunnel in their hands. That way they can use all the tracks to bring people out, says Boggs. Besides, it'll give us time to get the rest of our soldiers into the square. A few hours ago, the square was a no-man's land, the front line of the fight between the rebels and the peacekeepers. When Coyne gave approval for Gale's plan, the rebels launched a heated attack and drove the capital forces back several blocks so that we would control the train station in the event that the nut fell. Well, it's fallen. The reality has sunk in. Any survivors will escape to the square. I can hear the gunfire starting again, as the peacekeepers are no doubt trying to fight their way in to rescue their comrades. Our own soldiers are being brought in to counter this. You're cold, says Boggs. I'll see if I can find a blanket. He goes before I can protest. I don't want a blanket, even if the marble continues to leach my body heat. Katniss, says Hamish in my ear. I'm still here, I answer. Interesting turn of events with Peter this afternoon. Thought that you'd want to know, he says. Interesting isn't good. It isn't better. But I don't really have any choice but to listen. We showed in that clip of you singing The Hanging Tree. It was never aired, so the Capitol couldn't use it when he was being hijacked. He said that he recognised the song. For a moment, my heart skips a beat. And then I realise it's just more tracker-jacker serum confusion. He couldn't, Hamish. He never heard me sing that song. Not you, a father. He heard him singing it one day when they came to trade at the bakery. Peter was small, probably six or seven, but he remembered it because he was specifically listening to see if the birds stopped singing, says Hamish. I guess they did. Six or seven. 
That would have been right before my mother banned the song. Maybe even right around the time I was learning it. Was I there too? I don't think so. No mention of you anyway. But it's the first connection to you that's not triggered some sort of mental breakdown. Says Hamish. It's something, at least, Katniss. My father. He seems to be everywhere today. Dying in the mine. Singing his way into Peter's muddled consciousness. Flickering in the look that Boggs gives me as he protectively wraps the blanket around my shoulders. I miss him so badly, it hurts. The gunfire's really picking up outside. Gale hurries by with a group of rebels, eagerly headed for the battle. I don't petition to join the fighters. Not that they would let me. I've got no stomach for it anyway. No heat in my blood. I wish Peter was here. The old Peter, because he would be able to articulate why it was so wrong to be exchanging fire when people, any people, are trying to claw their way out of the mountain. Or is my own history making me too sensitive? Aren't we at war? Isn't this just another way to kill our enemies? Night falls quickly. Huge, bright spotlights are turned on, illuminating the square. Every bulb must be burning at full wattage inside the train station as well. Even from my position across the square, I can clearly see the plate glass front of the long, narrow building. It would be impossible to miss the arrival of a train, or even a single person. But hours pass, and no one comes. With each minute, it becomes harder to imagine that anyone survived the assault on the nut. It's well after midnight when Cressida comes to attach a special microphone to my costume. What's this for? I ask. Hamish's voice comes on to explain, I know that you're not going to like this, but we need you to make a speech. A speech? I say, feeling immediately queasy. I'll feed it to you line by line, he assures me. You'll just have to repeat what I say. Look, there's no sign of life from that mountain. We've won, but the fighting is continuing, so we thought that if you went out to the steps of the Justice Building and laid it out, told everyone in the district that the nut is defeated, that the capital's presence in District 2 is finished, you may be able to get the rest of their forces to surrender. A hold for sound. So we thought that if you went out on the steps of the Justice Building and laid it out, told everyone that the nut is defeated, that the capital's presence in District 2 is finished, you might be able to get the rest of their forces to surrender. I peer at the darkness beyond the square. I can't even see their forces. That's what the mic is for, he says. You'll be broadcast, both your voice through their emergency audio system and your image wherever people have got access to a screen. I know there are a couple of huge screens here on the square. I saw them on the Victory Tour. They might work if I were good at this sort of thing, which I'm not. They tried to feed me lines in those early experiments with the propos, too, and it was a flop. You could save... A lot of lives, Katniss, Hamish says finally. All right, 
I'll give it a try, I tell him. It's strange, standing outside at the top of the stairs, fully costumed, brightly lit, but with no visible audience to deliver my speech to. Like I'm doing a show for the moon. Let's make this quick. You're too exposed, says Hamish. My television crew, positioned out in the square with special cameras, indicates that they are ready. I tell Hamish to go ahead, then click my mic and listen carefully to him dictate the first line of the speech. A huge image of me lights up the screens over the square as I begin. People of District 2, this is Katniss Everdeen speaking to you from the steps of your Justice Building, where... The pair of trains come screeching into the open train station side by side. As the doors slide open, people tumble out in a cloud of smoke they've brought from the nut. They must have had at least an inkling of what would await them in the square, because you can see they're trying to act evasively. Most of them flatten to the floor, and a spray of bullets inside the station takes out the lights. They've come armed, as Gale predicted, but they've come wounded as well. The moans can be heard in an otherwise silent night air. Someone kills the lights on the stairs, leaving me in the protection of shadow. A flame blooms inside the station. One of the trains must actually be on fire, and a thick black smoke billows out against the windows. Left with no choice, the people begin to push out into the square, choking but defiantly waving their guns. My eyes dart around the rooftops that ring the square. Every one of them has been fortified with rebel-manned machine-gun nests. Moonlight glints off of oiled barrels. A young man staggers out from the station, one hand pressed against the bloody cloth at his cheek, the other dragging a gun. When he trips and falls to his face, I see the scorch marks down the back of his shirt, the red flesh underneath. And suddenly, he's just another burn victim from a mine accident. My feet fly down the steps and I take off running for him. Stop! I yell at the rebels. Hold your fire! The words echo around the square and beyond as the mic amplifies my voice. Stop! I'm nearing the young man, reaching down to help him when he drags himself up to his knees and trains his gun on my head. I instinctively back up a few steps, raise my bow over my head to show my intention was harmless. Now that he's got both hands on his gun, I notice the ragged hole in his cheek where something, falling stone maybe, punctured the flesh. He smells of burning things, and meat, and fuel, and hair. His eyes are crazed with pain and fear. Freeze! Hamish's voice whispers in my ear. I follow his order, realizing that this is what all of District 2, all of Pan Am maybe, must be seeing at the moment. The Mockingjay is at the mercy of a man with nothing to lose. His garbled speech is barely comprehensible. You gave me one reason I shouldn't shoot you. The rest of the world recedes. It's only me looking into the wretched eyes of the man from the nut who asks for one reason. Surely I should be able to come up with a thousand. But the words that make it to my lips are... I can't. 
I can't. I can't. Logically, the next thing that should happen is the man pulling the trigger. But he's perplexed. Trying to make sense of my words. I experience my own confusion as I realize what I've said is entirely true, and the noble impulse that carried me across the square is replaced by despair. I can't. I can't. That's the problem, isn't it? I lower my bow. We blew up your mine. You burned my district to the ground. We've got every reason to kill each other, so do it. Make the capital happy. I'm done killing their slaves for them. I drop my bow to the ground. I give it a nudge with my boot. It slides across the stone and comes to a rest at his knees. I'm not their slave, the man mutters. I am, I say. That's why I killed Cato. And he killed Thresh. And he killed Clove. And she tried to kill me. It just goes around and around. And who wins? Not us. Not the districts. Always the capital. But I'm tired of being a piece in their games. Peter, on the rooftop the night before our first Hunger Games. He understood it all before we'd even set foot in the arena. I hope he's watching now, that he remembers that night as it happened, and maybe forgives me when I die. Keep talking. Tell them about watching the mountain go down, Hamish insists. When I saw that mountain fall tonight, I thought, they've done it again? Got me to kill you, the people in the districts. But why did I do it? District 12 and District 2 have no fight, except the one the capital gave us. The young man blinks at me uncomprehendingly. I sink on my knees before him, my voice low and urgent. And why are you fighting with the rebels on the rooftops? With Lime, who was your victor? With people who were your neighbours, maybe even your family. I don't know, says the man, but he doesn't take his gun off me. I rise and turn slowly in a circle, addressing the machine guns. And you up there? I come from a mining town. Since when do miners condemn each other to that kind of death? And then stand by to kill whoever manages to crawl out of the rubble? Who is the enemy? whispers Hamish. These people! I indicate the wounded bodies on the square. Are not your enemy! I whip around back to the train station. The rebels are not your enemy! We've all got one enemy and it's the capital! This is our chance to put an end to their power, but we need every district person to do it! The cameras are tight on me as I reach out my hands to the man, to the wounded, to the reluctant rebels across Pan Am. Please, join us! My words hang in the air. I look to the screen, hoping to see them recording some wave of reconciliation going through the crowd. Instead, I watch myself get shot on television.
Cliffhanger, eh? Who'd have thunk it? Who could have seen this coming, I wonder? Ay ay ay. Ay ay ay. What do we think, gang? <laughs> How are you feeling about today? Um <laughs> I see that uh, Courier Six has popped in. Oh, it was a long time ago. It was at uh, about five o'clock. About an hour ago. But uh <laughs> I see that Courier Six over in Discord. But uh Courier Six aka Proteus Spade also says Yeah! Dang it! <laughs> Hogwarts says, oh, I've got a headache. Um, Pretty Spade says, you said this was toward the middle of the book? This is climactic as hell. Um, yeah, yeah, y'all, this is a big one. This is a big one. Yeah, Bowtie <laughs> Bo Fox, I love that. When you give a good speech and the DM says, roll persuasion, and you get a nat one. Yeah, I mean, you, 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 you know, you give your whole speech and then you roll the dice and it just doesn't quite pan out and that's why i always say i'm not going to talk about about rpgs for long i promise i promise but that's why i always say your stats are your skills the dice are circumstances the dice aren't determining how well you do they're they determine how challenging the circumstances around that are so that's why when people are rolling persuasion you can have an excellent speech and still roll that nat one i saw a twitter thread about this a while ago and so i wanted to kind of comment on it i guess i don't really feel the need to weigh in on twitter because yeah, yeah but but i do think there's something to be said for for uh you know just boy saying all the right things and still just being up against something insurmountable uh and also for those good folks who maybe aren't so great at this but Maybe they say the right thing kind of on accident. I think there are good cases to be made for both. That's why I still like using the dice even in sort of persuasion, speech giving, performance, that kind of stuff. So there you go. <laughs> it's about the reception. The dice are the circumstances. And for Katniss's case here, and that's seen on the RPG talk. Um, for Katniss's case here, the circumstances are definitely not favorable. You know, these are people who have all of their lives all of their lives been given this sense of uh, antagonism toward the other districts and given like real tangible incentives to to, to really kind of hate them to train to kill them right there's a lot there there's a lot there <laughs> pretty spade says i've got such rage how dare that was such a majestic speech it was it was it, it had some real majesty to it it was good stuff but this is District 2 we're up against right now. Sometimes District 2, uh, a.k.a. second-in-command, sometimes these second-in-command can be even more invested in maintaining the power structure than the people up at the top. Sometimes the people up at the top kind of recognize, like, they can see it all from above. They can see how frail it is. And then President Snow has mentioned this explicitly. So... He can see from up there how frail his power is. It, it is strong, but it's brittle. There we go. It is it is, it is is brittle power. A little bit like glass, right? If you just like take a piece of glass and press it against a table, it'll take a lot. Uh, uh, if you scratch steel against glass, the, the steel will scratch before the glass. It is hard, but it's brittle. It can be shattered. And sometimes these people at the top, they kind of realize, okay, I'm not going to make it out of this one. So they can they cut and run a little bit quicker. It's these second-in-command folks. It's this middle group. Um, 
this uh, this if, if we consider it sort of a three tiered system where the the top tier is the the single person or the very very small group of people who are sort of the despots the 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 dictators in this situation that middle group is uh, the kind of the the, uh, the 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 local managers of things uh, different power structures have different names for all these sorts of things of course uh, and then the third and lowest and also oftentimes the much largest group are just the citizens here it's that second group it's that group in the middle that will often fight the hardest to maintain this power structure oftentimes because they've been told how it is right that they have power the people up at the top understand that power isn't really isn't really uh, blessed upon people. It's not bestowed by any higher power. It's not, no, it is It is taken. Power is taken. And so they realize up at the top there, yeah, um, this whole thing could come down at any moment. But the line they've been feeding to this middle section here, which I think is going to include a lot of these people from, from District 2, this middle section has been fed lines about how they deserve it or about how, uh, you know, some god has decreed they shall be in charge. We're, we're kind of like exploring this over in Elantris for some of our soundbite readings, right? This is all stuff we've seen before. But you tell that, the, the top group tells that middle group whatever they need to hear and then that middle group will die for this structure. They will fight to the death for this thing. Tooth and nail and claw and whatever they got. Because frankly, oftentimes they believe in it more than the people at the top. But yes, Big Mama puts it pretty concisely here. We don't have we don't have our uh, our boy Mike Steele in here to to give it like a real a real snappy little button. But I think Big Mama puts it pretty well. This was such an intense read tonight. Yes, I think that it was think that it was and uh, we're going to come back next week and continue to talk about it um i would point you all at um at my last recording because i was saying some things in there that are important and uh i want to revisit those for a moment before we move on to our next bits of adventure which include sound bites um uh i want to revisit some of those things once again uh as i expressed last week Lots of discussion right now about uh, about people's rights in the United States, and because my audience I know is primarily from the U.S., even though I've got a you know I've definitely got some folks in here from Europe, and I thank you very much for joining me. Lots of discussion in the United States right now about uh, what rights are deserved by which people, and uh, it seems like there is an undercurrent of faith in all of this uh, in decision making, um, and I want to reiterate it is faith that makes people decide things like District 2 here. It is faith in systems, structures of power that aren't tangible, that can't be proven in any way. It is faith in ideas about about natural hierarchies or about uh, uh, true unencroachable uh, definitions of morality and sin. These things uh, are all faith-based and Decisions should not be made according to faith. Trans rights are human rights. Um, and for all of you good folks um, who, and I'm going to continue to couch this in terms of perhaps not the people who want to hear me talk about it, uh, as much as people like myself, people who are 
white or who can certainly pass off as straight or who are uh, male or who <laughs> uh, who uh, you know find themselves you know had had been religious at one point uh, especially evangelicals essentially people that fit darn near every single box for the the majority right there are privileges that come with that and uh, one of these some of these things that can feel like, attacks on us are actually just kind of our privilege being revealed. This is something that I had to contend with a lot as I was um, uh, basically around my college age. Um, I I contended with this quite a bit. There were there were things that felt wrong to me. People that, that felt like they, they wanted to take something away from me. Uh, and I think that is a lot of the messages that it, that's a lot of the messaging that is being used right now. Um, there's this word groomer that's being pushed around uh, that has, is simultaneously uh, being used to misidentify people of uh, the LGBTQ um, sort of, um, uh, I guess, being on the flag, being on the rainbow flag, I guess I'll say, uh, which I myself am on that flag. Uh, and there's this there's this also simultaneously uh, this word is sort of losing all of its meaning when it it is a very useful and important word when discussing people who are actually uh actively grooming young people for for uh well for for dark purposes that's being used um there's a lot of discussion about how uh trans women uh, are trying to somehow take or steal or capture the definition of woman uh, from, quote, real women. All these things are being pushed around and you are going to find more and more. There are these people in the middle. There are people up at the top who recognize this is, it has nothing to do with a, a system of inherent morality. They absolutely recognize that um, there's, there's nothing really behind this. But they know if they can pump this middle group full of enough rhetoric, uh, oftentimes religious and very often faith-based, right? This is faith-based rhetoric. Uh, the idea that uh, that somehow somewhere deep down in, in the core of truth, um, and what this really means is somewhere in a book written and rewritten and rewritten and then edited. Uh, go ahead and look up the Council of Nicaea if this is all news to you folks. Uh, but... The Bible has been torn apart and put back together plenty of times. All this, uh, you, you can speak to people in certain words, and this middle group, if you feed them full enough of, of very religious rhetoric here in the United States, uh, and very faith-based rhetoric, they will defend this system of power that keeps women from having any real uh, authority or agency, uh, that keeps basically people who look a lot like me uh, at the very top of the power structure. And as a result, people who look like me have an obligation. I have an obligation to talk about this. Um, it's important that people hear this, people especially that, that look and live like me in most ways. Yeah, if, if this all comes to pass, I can, you know, if, if, this, if everything, if every wish of this power structure came to pass, I could make myself look and act like just about every other person that would subsequently be at the very top of the, of the, the hierarchy. I would be at the top of that pile. I am white. I can pass as straight very easily. Um, I am a man. I would be at the top of this pile. It would be a terrible and hellish pile. And yes, this is a very functional power structure that they are describing. And it's functional in the same way that every system of, of um, 
uh, of tyranny has ever been functional. Because if you have control over people, you can force them to do anything you want. That is functional, right? Is it correct? Is there any real, genuine moral value to it? Absolutely not. And I will remind you good folks, because I was religious once at one point myself, I will remind any of you folks who are looking at decisions based on faith being made in this country, and I want to remind you of two things. Two reminders for you. Anyone looking at this country thinking, I am happy about the fact that decisions are being made on a faith basis. Number one, if you consider yourself sort of a patriot of the United States and you put a lot of stock in the uh, in, in the pilgrims who came over here to, to practice religious freedom, I will remind you, they were coming from a place that, has, that, that had incredibly united church and state. Everyone who left in order to come to the United States to practice religion freely, practice their evangelical religion freely, they were escaping a system where church and state were incredibly united. The separation of church and state is for the preservation of the state and also for the preservation of the church to allow people to continue to practice religion as they must, as they wish to. And this brings us to our second issue because I just want to ask you the question, if you are looking at this, at, at, at recent events and thinking to yourself, it's good that the separation between church and state is breaking down a little bit. I like this. I like that my faith is being represented. Um, my The rules that I follow are being enforced on other people. The rules that I follow according to my religion are being enforced on other people. I want you to ask yourself, what denomination of evangelical Christianity should be in government? The United States government, if you like this, if you are happy about what's happening here, if you think that the United States government should be more Christian, which denomination? How should they feel about the sacraments? How should they feel about infant baptism? To those of you who did not necessarily grow up in in uh, religion, this isn't going to make a lot of sense, but I don't know that I have a lot to say to you folks. I have a ton to say to people who grew up like me, who look like me, and what I want to ask you is, if you're happy about where this is going, it's not like it stops where, at whatever point makes you happiest. As it's been done before, as was some of the founding members of our country fleeing what denomination should we end up as go ahead and ask yourself that thank you all very much for joining me of course um some reminders that i need to uh need to go ahead and put out to you all um and I think uh, it's important that we talk about these things. And uh, I decided fairly recently it is vitally important that I talk about these things. Um, as I said, it would be very easy for me if uh, the world if, if the United States continue as it wishes to, um, uh, according to certain members, uh, according to those who wish to uh, enforce religious rulings on non-religious people, if they get their way, it's going to be easy for me to end up at the top of that pile. Sam is going to be near the top of that pile. Easily. I look right. I was born with darn near every list of, uh, every check mark on the list of privilege. And so I got to tell all of you same folks who share all of or part of that same privilege that I was born with. This does not turn out well for anyone. For anyone. So don't become part of that middle group that gets fed lines about faith and 
you suddenly will defend this system even as it gets worse and worse and worse for everyone, including you. There it is. 